You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. My name is Rob. If we've never met, it's a joy to meet you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we've been in a series called Thriving in the Margins. Thanks, Tim. And it's, uh, it's from the book of First Peter, and uh, I, I'm enjoying this book. I hope you are. We have books, uh, journal books out there in the lobby that you can pick up and track along with us at home. And uh, today, we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and uh, the title of today's message is Seeing Ourselves Differently, because that's what Peter is going to call the church to us, what God calls us to today is to see ourselves very differently. He's going to use some provocative language to do so. Now, if you're new to First Peter, or this is your very first time here at the church, let me give you just a little bit of background. Uh, when Peter is writing this letter, which is a circular letter written to multiple churches to be read out loud in contexts like this, it's to a people who are suffering, and the suffering that they're experiencing is that they've been pushed to the margins. They've been ignored. They have suffered loss of property and privilege. Uh, at this point in church history, it's, it's probably not likely martyrdom, although that is, uh, that is coming later down the road. But at this point, it's a loss of property and privilege. And, and the main thing that they're experiencing is just being pushed out of the main conversation. It's just being ignored. And if you've ever experienced being pushed out, you can despair in anger and you can get louder and louder and angrier and angrier, or you can change your outlook altogether and entirely. My grandfather tells the story about a time that he was playing six-man high school football here in Texas in my hometown. This was in the 40s. And uh, they're, they're playing this game against another local team, and they are getting crushed, absolutely crushed, first quarter, second quarter, come back at halftime, and they are just getting decimated and, uh, and just losing. And the, the score is just climbing to 60, 70, 80. And it starts to get kind of boring, and, and everybody stops kind of cheering until the other side starts to go all in, all the more, even though they're so far ahead. And that was very confusing to my grandfather's side of the team because they're like, what are they, what are they all in for? They've got the, the game won already until they started to hear what the chanting was and the chanting was make it a hundred make it a hundred let's go let's go to a hundred and then something happened with them they said we don't want them to get to a hundred and they shifted their focus and they went all in for a different game they started to play a different game where they were not going to get beat by 100, and they went all out. And they didn't get to 100. And there was a victory after the, uh, the game, because they, they kept that from happening. They stopped playing one game, and they started to play another. Accepting the loss of one game freed them up to thrive in a different game and to play at their best. And I share that illustration because... Jesus calls us in 1 Peter to a different game than the world plays. And it involves losses along the way, but it leads to certain victory. 
And it's a long game. We're, we're called to suffer some losses on some short games because there's a certain victory that's coming. And in chapter 2, 1 through 12, we're given a picture of this long game that we're called to play. And we're called to see ourselves differently in order to play this game all out and with a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. So it's on the screen behind me, but you can follow along if you have a, a paper version uh, in, in your lap or on your device. He starts in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his, wonder, his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you would not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's just good to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, thriving in the margins, it's our series, but uh, thriving in the margins, I believe in this text, requires seeing ourselves differently. And the provocative language you heard already as I, I read that, several images, we're going to focus on three of them. In verses 1 and 3, he tells the church to see themselves as newborn infants. In verses 4 through 8, he tells them to see themselves as living stones. And in verses 9 through 11, to see themselves as a chosen race. Newborn infants, living stones, chosen race. So let's look at the first three verses there about how we're called to be newborn infants. He says, so put away, uh, another way uh, that's translated, just get rid of all malice. And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of sins that they're supposed to put away or to rid their lives of. Or the only sins that they're supposed to do this. Uh, but it's the primary characteristics of the host culture. It's the way the world was operating in, uh, in the Greek culture in Asia Minor at that time. And it's the way that the world operates now. And that's why he's saying get rid of all of that stuff. And it's picked up again in verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. These are passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. Now, 
uh, it's an interesting list that he highlights. All sins uh, and all passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. But the ones that he picks up are, notice, malice. That's evil hostility to harm. Uh, It's lying or deceit. Hypocrisy, that's doing the things that you judge others for doing. It's, It's when I drive on any road and highway. Total hypocrite. It's envy, it's tearing someone down who we think has an advantage over us. You ever do that? Comparing and contrasting what you have to another and start tearing them down internally or online or face-to-face. And slander, it's speaking evil of someone to bring them harm. And notice that all of these are social evils against people. They're sins that harm relationships and destroy community. And oftentimes in society, these are respectable evils. And they're respectable sins that are okay to do if you're in agreement with those who you are conspiring with to do them. As long as everybody's okay, we're going to just load on the hypocrisy. Maybe we, we started off by saying, bless her heart, and then boom, it's, it's on. Uh, you ever do that? Uh, yes, you have. You're all liars. <laughs> so, because we all do this. We all do this, Okay. And uh, we grow comfortable with it. Well, Peter is calling them to get rid of that. Resist that. It was waging war against your souls. He says, put it away. And the word that he says before he says get rid of is the word so. Do you notice that? So? That so is very important because it connects all the indicatives and the promises of chapter 1 that we've seen before this Sunday with the imperatives or the commands to obey in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now that's very important because commands to obey are always rooted in the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done in you through the Holy Spirit to connect you what God has done for you in Christ. And, and that has to be in view here before we start thinking about putting away malice and deceit and slander, all these things that we do pretty regularly. We have to remember what has been said about who we are. Well, What's been said, verse 3 of chapter 1, remember, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is, notice this language, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You have this unshakable and unfading promise and inheritance that is just locked up and loaded up and going nowhere. And it's just there. It's, it's alive and living and it's not going anywhere. And you've been born again unto this inheritance. Notice verse 18, chapter 1. You were ransomed. That means you were bought back. You were purchased for this inheritance. You were purchased for this unfading inheritance. Uh, undefiled, imperishable life to come, and you've been purchased and ransomed from these futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that the malice, the envy, the deceit, those are all futile things that you inherited from your forefathers, Uh, but you were ransomed from that, and not with just things like silver, gold, I mean, just really uh, stuff that eventually perishes away, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ, this untouchable, imperishable thing. You've been bought with that. 
If, if you've been purchased by that and ransomed uh, by that, and now you're an inheritance of something that's undefiled and can't be taken away from you, uh, think on that. And then he says, verse 23, you've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It, it's this indestructible hope that you have been bought and purchased with. And so he says, listen, in your suffering, as things are taken away from you, look at the things that cannot be taken away from you. I mean, we can suffer the loss of a, a lot of things when you know that there are certain things that absolutely are untouchable that can never be removed from my life. So where is envy to those who have everything? Christian, you have everything. You're an inheritance of everything. You're an heir of all things. Why be petty and malicious if you're robed in royalty? Where's there room for that? Why spend time slandering others when God doesn't slander us? We are worthy of being slandered. And he does not treat us like that. So why do we do that with others? As he says, so get rid of that. You inherited that from your forefathers. Don't act that way. Be radically different and put those things off. Well, how do we do that? Well, he says, he says how we do it in verse 2. Here's how. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. That growing up into salvation, that's sanctification connected to verse 3. If indeed you've tasted the, that the Lord is good. That's because you're in Christ, because you've tasted the salvation that is freely offered to you in Jesus. By faith alone, grow up into this uh, and long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, that's not a statement of doubt. Sometimes that can be read. If indeed, you know, you're just locked in on that, thinking, well, that, is, this, is he doubting their salvation? No. That can also be translated, since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's basically saying, you've tasted and seen what Psalm 34 has said about God, that the Lord is good. And uh, it's, it, that's provocative language, isn't it? It's basically the Lord is delicious and uh, all satisfying to the soul. And, uh, and, and you've tasted that. You've tasted of his presence and you believed upon Jesus by faith alone. And so with confidence, uh, keep doing that. Keep longing for that pure spiritual milk since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, what is the pure spiritual milk? Sometimes this can be sort of narrowly defined as maybe like personal Bible study. Is this personal devotional Bible study sort of individualistically done? After all, verse 23 of chapter 1 says we're born again by the word of God. And so oftentimes that's sort of the application here. And, uh, and I don't think it means less than that at all. But I think it means much more than that. And one of the reasons is, is that they didn't have personal Bibles available to them like we do. Praise God that we do. Praise God that we've got the word so accessible. God is kind to us and merciful to us that he has given us uh, the word so available uh, at all times. But for them in this day, it was letters and scrolls and it was preached to them in community. This letter is being read out loud and they're all gathered together. So the you there is plural. Obviously, there's an individualistic aspect to that, but it's a plural. It's the people of God. You all long for the pure spiritual milk. So that's, that's one reason. And, he, and another reason why 
It's not just like an individual Bible study time. It's because he's about to talk about how they're a spiritual house. He's about to talk about how they are now the temple of God, the dwelling place of God himself. And last but not least, Jesus warned the Pharisees about loving the Bible and bypassing Jesus himself because they did not view it in the sense of what God was doing among God's people in community corporately. It was very individualistic. It was about them. It was a platform for them. Uh, in John 5, he rebuked the, uh, the, not the disciples, but the Pharisees. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And he says, there's a way to actually be all about Bible study and not be doing it in such a way that you're coming to Jesus. It's a, maybe a platform for yourself. I don't know if you struggle with that. There was a time in my life when I did. Constantly going to the Bible. And it was really about me. And it really wasn't about drawing closer and closer to this Lord who is good and tasting and seeing. And so, uh, but it does, it, it does involve that. It is, it is personal. It is uh, experiencing God personally through the word. But it's not just that. It probably means more something like the things of the word that nourish Christian community. Like the preaching of the word and the singing of the word and the praying of the word and communion and teaching and fellowship and service. It's things that we, we do together when we gather. That's, that's the pure milk of the word. We're drinking and experiencing Christ through the word among the gathered people of God. The, the short way of thinking about that is experiencing Jesus in community. This is the pure spiritual milk of the Lord. This is how we experience that the Lord is good. Yes, we do that privately, but we do that really corporately when we gather together. He says, long for that. Long for that. You're going to have a long week this week. You're going to go into some very difficult things, some very difficult and challenging and tempting things. Long to gather back together again. And, and it will help you as you're going through temptation and challenge as you do so. What does it mean to long? It means to crave. It means to crave it intensely. Crave the spiritual milk intensely. Have you ever craved something intensely and longed for something? Have you ever longed for milk? Some of you are lactose intolerant. You say, I've never longed for milk in my life. But you probably did at one point. When my, my oldest son was uh, an infant, uh, my wife was pregnant, and uh, I got the privilege. Uh, I didn't get this with the other two, but I got the privilege of the late night uh, bottle feeding. And uh, I, I got his permission to share this. Sam would scream at the top of his lungs, like blood-curling scream. Or at least it felt that way at 2 in the morning. And, uh, and then I would get up, and I would just, oh, I, I, oh, I've got to go back to sleep, and I've got to get him sort of nourished and get, this, uh, get him to drink this bottle. So I'd make the bottle, give it to him, and he would take like two swallows. I think two, maybe three, and he would fall back. He would just start to fall back asleep. And I'd be like, no, 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 you've got you've to wake up. So I'm turning the bottle around, and I'm bouncing around, doing everything I can, and uh, trying to get him to, to wake up and drink this. Because I know as soon as he goes down, and if he hasn't drinking the whole bottle, he's going to uh, have another blood-curling scream at like in 10 minutes and wake me back up. And so um, that's what healthy babies do. Healthy children cry for milk. When they're unhealthy, they don't. 
When they're unhealthy, they don't. Healthy children cry out for milk. And a healthy spirituality cries out for the gospel among community. And, uh, and just like that milk causes sort of instant comfort and rest, so does the gospel among community. I mean, when we gather together, we get a chance to, to take in and receive the promises of what God has done for us. And it should cause, by God's grace, a rest to our hearts where we come in and we settle into that and, uh, and, and we believe it all over again for ourselves and we get that sort of immediate comfort. And that, that's what the pure spiritual milk of Christ does among his people. So he says, tap into that. Tap into it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Obey that. Like, obey your thirst, you know, as, as it's been said. All right, so he says, uh, see yourselves as a, as a, not as a child in that sense, but see yourself with a childlike thirst that's not going away. God's not removing that ever from us. So, so tap into that. Secondly, see yourselves, see ourselves as living stones. Notice verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice again, verse 4, as you come to him, you're coming to Jesus. As we take advantage of the means of grace that he's given to us, we're really coming to him personally. We're trusting in him personally. We're coming to him, and who is he? He is a living stone that's been rejected, but in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. As we come to him, not just for the first time in sort of salvation and justification or getting saved, but over and over and over again, as we keep coming... We ourselves are becoming living stones like him, being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. As we trust in Jesus, we enter into a a sort of priesthood duty alongside our great high priest. We are coming to the chosen and precious living stone, and we ourselves are chosen and precious as we do so. We ourselves are now entering into a holy priesthood, and we're a spiritual house, a house made up of stones. Now, that's, uh, that's kind of provocative and, and, and odd language to think of yourselves like that, but it's also greatly comforting. Uh, stones, he says, are set, or were built up, to other stones as this spiritual house. In Ephesians 1, we're called that that house has a ceiling on it with the promised Holy Spirit. It's as if the stones are placed alongside the cornerstone, who is Christ, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and they become living stones. And then another one comes to Christ by faith, and they're sealed as a living stone next to that stone, connected to the cornerstone. And again, and again, and again, and it just happens over and over again. As you look out across this room, you're looking at living stones who are sealed to that cornerstone and sealed to you, set in, built up together by the Holy Spirit. And it's this immovable, unshakable sealing. The Holy Spirit is not uh, uh, anything but, but perfect in the way that he builds us up, as he sets us in 
in this immovable, unfading reality. When I moved into my, my current house, I learned the power of sealing and of cement in particular. Uh, we wanted to remove all the tile from the first floor of this house. And uh, I don't know anything about how to remove tile or what was underneath t- tile. So I asked some people that knew and they said, oh, that's, that can be a big job. They said, it all depends on how much thin set they used. And I, I didn't know what thin set was. I thought that sounded really thin and really <laughs> simply set. And uh, they said, well, you'll know after the first tile, if it pops off easily, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty easy to, to, to get rid of. But if it doesn't, it's, it might not be. So we did the first tile, and that didn't pop up easily. And then we're smashing the second tile. That didn't, do, that didn't pop up easily. And the third and fourth and fifth, and we're way into the project before we realize uh, there, there is a lot of thin set, which is cement, underneath all of this tile on the first floor. And we were too far into the project to ever turn back. And so what I ended up doing was renting every kind of tool imaginable to remove this concrete. And we'd smash up the tile, but then we would try to get all these these tools that I could afford and that were legal to try to get this stuff (laughs) off the ground. The only thing that ended up working was a grinder with diamond-bladed pads. This is not the way that my wife wants me to buy diamonds, is diamond blades to grind this concrete down. And it wouldn't even stay on because it was so powerful. It kept, you know, flipping the breaker. So you'd use it for 10 minutes and it would shut down because it was so powerful. I, I hated this concrete. I hate thin set to this day. I hate it. I, it's a trigger word for me. I'm having a hard time even sharing about this. It, was, it became a quest. It was my personal quest to get the concrete off the first floor. And I have more details I can't share. I won't, ha- won't bore you with the details. But I absolutely hated this stuff. But it, eventually, with the diamond-bladed grinder, it, it, uh, it finally broke up the cement. We were able to move forward with the project. Listen, I, I just share that illustration. It's a silly illustration, but we are sealed to Jesus by a grace that no grinder and no diamond blade and no breaker of hell is powerful enough to remove. It, it, it'll never sand down the cement that you have to Jesus Christ. You are, you are bound together in an unshakable seal, and this mortar isn't going anywhere, and you're connected to the family of God, and, uh, and that's, that's incredibly comforting. We are living stones uh, set in, built into Jesus, and, uh, and sealed by God himself. God himself has sealed you. God himself has sealed us. We don't have to wonder, uh, is God going to show up when the living stones arrive to sing praises to Jesus? We don't have to pilgrimage to a place and hope that maybe, just maybe, God's going to show up. When we show up, he indwells this place because he is indwelling you and indwelling all of us as living stones. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
if, I don't know if anybody's in here struggling with that. If I trust in him, is it going to be worth it? Listen, hold fast to verse 6. If you believe in him, if you put your trust in him, you will not be put to shame. This cornerstone will never fail. If you put your weight on that stone, you will not uh, fall. You will, hold, you will be held up. It's the chosen stone. It's the precious stone. It's the cornerstone. And you can put your faith in that stone and become a living stone. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Notice that the same word that caused life in you causes stumbling in others. Some of you stumbled over the stone until you put your faith in Jesus and it became a stone of life for you. The same word can cause life. You, you can trust today and, uh, and believe and receive uh, a, a steady and firm ground underneath you and not stumble over this and not disobey the word as it says some are destined to do. Some will hear this and reject and, and keep walking. They'll stumble over the stone. They'll keep stumbling. They'll keep running away. Don't do that. Don't run from that. Be, a, be, be and enjoy the fact that you're a living stone built up in, into Jesus. And lastly, uh, we're a chosen race. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter, who's writing this, walked with Jesus, and he was sort of the, a missionary to, to Jewish people. He grew up a Jew, and he was committed to ethnic Israel. And he believed that salvation was only for this particular race of people. Uh, Exodus 15 says that you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And so Peter believed that this was ethnic Israel, a treasured possession. Believed, at least initially, that maybe Christ was just coming for uh, ethnic Israel at the time. How, how could other people become his treasured possession? And then God visits Peter in a dream in the book of Acts. You can read about it. And then sends a non-Jew to him. And he realizes through both this dream and these amazing circumstances that God sets up that the gospel is going to go out to all nations, all people, all around the world. And other people are going to get grafted in to become God's treasured possession. People like you and people like me. And when Peter realizes this in Acts, he preaches a message to a group of non-Jews. He says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what's right is acceptable to him. And he commanded us to preach the gospel and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To hear him, all the prophets bear witness. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And it's just this powerful realization in Peter's heart and mind that anybody who believes can receive forgiveness and pardon. 
in the name of Jesus. This fulfillment has taken place. Nations are grafted into the kingdom through faith in Jesus, through the pardoning love of God, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit. A new Israel, a new people of God is established. A new treasured possession, a new chosen race, a new royal priesthood, a new holy nation. A people that belong to God with a purpose and with a comfort. Notice that comfort. Once you were not, but now you are. There is no both and in this scenario. There's a lot of both ands in the Bible, you know. But not in this moment. It's either or. Once you were not a people, now you are. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. You are in the place in which God will only show you mercy. Now. Not one day, but right now. Yes, one day, but now. Now you've received mercy. That word now is powerful. Romans 8, 1 gives us another sort of now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When is that? That's right now. Right now, no condemnation. For, for why? For the law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has performed for us in the gospel what you and I could never do for ourselves. He's kept the law. And now he's put the spirit in our hearts to help us obey and to keep the law. And, uh, and, and, and a law that he's already done for us. And therefore there is no condemnation. So this new uh, covenant reality has taken place in us. And that should comfort us. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. We were once not a people. Now we are recipients of mercy. And that gives us purpose. Look, that you may proclaim. Proclaim what? The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are people of light called into marvelous light, called out of darkness. And so that's why he's saying get rid of all that silly malice and envy and hypocrisy and don't fool around with all of that. You've been called to proclaim something different. You've called, been called to use your mouths and lips and uh, everything else with a, a whole new purpose to proclaim his love and his excellencies and the gospel message that you were once not a, a recipient of mercy, but now you are. You have an amazing testimony. Every person here, an amazing testimony. And it's simply this. I've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. No matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter if you were raised in a Christian home or you just came to faith yesterday, you were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's this guy in John chapter 9 who uh, gets healed. And it becomes very controversial because the Pharisees don't like the fact that he's going around saying that Jesus healed me. And he gave me sight. And now I see and so they call him in, and they try to get him to sort of renounce what's happened to him. And he has a very simple testimony, and it's this. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. He says, I don't understand everything about Jesus. I don't understand it all. But I know I was blind and now I see. And you could read this and say, man, that's a lot about royal priesthood and a spiritual house. And listen, you, you, you and I don't have to understand 
all of that. But we can understand that we were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We were blind, but now we see. And here's how he closes, verse 11. Beloved, beloved. Oh, hear that. Hear that, church. Beloved. We're loved. Peter's not saying, you know, Peter is expressing his love for the church. But he's basically rooting that in who you are in Christ. You're beloved. You're beloved by God. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you, not if, but when, you know, when they cancel you and speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He, he goes back to reminding them about this day of the Lord, this day of visitation. And he says, listen, everything's going to be reversed on that day. Don't worry about it. Uh, the people who are speaking evil against you as evildoers, they know you're not and they see your good deeds, and they're going to give a different kind of account about you on that day. So you don't have anything to worry about. Don't worry about the suffering, the loss of anything, because God sees it all. And he's going to bring about an incredible grace. Verse 13 of chapter 1 says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, there's going to be a grace that is brought to you. And uh, everything is going to be reversed in that moment. Put your confidence there. Not in what you have to manage and try to control. You, you can't manage it. You can't control it. You can't control what somebody else does to you or says about you. Uh, but you can uh, put your confidence and your hope fully in Christ. And you can put away malice and deceit and evil speech as you do so. And, and Jude 24 reminds us of this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is the great day of visitation. Jesus is going to visit us. I mean, just think of it that way. Somebody is on their way to visit you. And if you know somebody's on their way to visit you, you get ready. You get prepared. You, you think about, you know, is my house ready for the visitor, you know? And, uh, and you, you prepare. And he says, do that. Think of it that way. Think of it as, as this Christ is on his way and he's going to bring about an, an amazing amount of grace as he, as he comes to you, able to present you before him blameless with great joy, but he's on his way and he's going to reverse anything uh, bad that has been spoken about you. And so you can put away the malice and see it's, it's, uh, it's a waste of time. Well, here's how we're going to close. We're going to close by receiving communion and then singing together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.